A happy Sunday to you all. My name is Reverend Mari, Mari Caballero, and I'm one of the uh, assistant ministers here. I am here to welcome you today and uh, lead this service. I just want to say that if you're here for the first time, second time, third time, please do stop by uh, the welcome desk on your way out to join us for coffee and bagels, because we would like for you to join us for coffee and bagels. And we would love uh, to be able to greet you by name and welcome you properly. We are a place of religious seekers, uh, a place of progressive minds, and a place of large diversity of belief. And we welcome you today. One of the the things we do kind of agree upon, sort of, <laughs> is the, the our history that we have. We come from a long line, a heritage that says there is a spark of the divine that resides deep within each one of us. And so often we start the services by saying, let's go ahead and greet the holy within our midst by turning to your right and left and saying hello to a little piece of God. We start each service by lighting the chalice, a symbol of our faith. And I'd like to invite you to please join me in the words by which we light our chalice found in your orders of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. My name is Elizabeth Gray, and I'm your lay leader this morning. And I'm going to read a piece from Angela Herrera called All That Lies Within You. Consider this an invitation to you, yes, you, with all of your happiness and all of your burdens, your hopes and regrets, an invitation if you feel good today, and an invitation if you do not, if you are aching, and there are so many ways to ache. Whoever you are, however you are, Wherever you are in your journey, this is an invitation to peace. Peace in your heart and peace in your heart. And with every breath, peace in your heart. Maybe your heart is heavy or hardened. Maybe it's troubled. And peace can take up residence only in a small corner, only on the edge. With all that's going on in the world and all your life. Ni modo. It doesn't matter. All that you need for a deep and comforting peace to grow lies within you. Once it is in your heart, let it spread into your life. Let it pour from your life into the world. And once it is in the world, let it shine upon all beings. I mentioned at the outset that we are a very diverse group of thinkers, and it's true. We have folks in the room who uh, have their religious background in Hinduism. We have folks from the Muslim tradition. We have folks who are secular humanists. We have folks who are atheists, folks of Christian orientation. We've got folks all over the theological spectrum. And the thing that we agree upon is that there is wisdom in each and that we're all in it together. 
Another thing we agree upon, well, because we took the time and wrote it together, is our mission statement, and we try to live into it each day as individuals and as a body, a congregation. We wrote it on our wall, and we remind ourselves of it every Sunday by saying it together. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading today, aptly named, is Ms. Perfect by Karen Solvig Anderson. Round, brown, doe-like eyes rested near the edge of her glasses. Best described as stout, there was nothing unhurried about her. The skin under her arms swung in pendulum force when she moved due to years of weight fluctuation. My grandmother, far from slave to fashion, she nonetheless cared about her appearance, wearing a full corseted girdle daily. She wasn't ugly or beautiful, yet she sported a quick, one-sided, mischievous grin that always kept you guessing of her womanly guises. She was a klutz of enormous proportions, the trait I inherited, a woman who looked like a grandmother at 30. It may have not helped that she drove a 1964 Plymouth Valiant with push-button transmission, the kind of car that no matter what your age screamed geriatric mobile. My grandmother was a misfit of sorts. When I was a child, she was my icon of paradox. On one hand, she was the mother of comfort. Her house always smelled of overcooked vegetables and well-used wool. When feeling out of sorts, she would promptly offer you her favorite food, cheese whiz on toast. On the other hand, nobody could embarrass me as a kid, making me uncomfortable like she could. She would be deep in conversation with someone while concurrently and unabashedly scratching her large bosom, oblivious to the obvious misstep in propriety. She was queen of malaprop, which at times proved proved humorous and at others embarrassing. Once she was telling some friends and family about my cousin's recent abode in Missouri, where she was attending college. Well, Liv has found such a nice condom to live in. It's beautiful. (laughs) It took everything in all of us gathered in her living room to bite any part of our mouth in an effort to control our laughter. The image of a house-sized latex condom serving as a woman's condo had us in fits. This odd woman could weave beauty into lives like none other. An avid, voracious quilter, she was a binder of pieces and parts. She took beauty seriously and expected all of us to do so, too. She was the most patient, attentive counselor. When burdened with life's questions and perplexities, her living room was always open, her ear always attuned, her answers measured. She could also give you a biting retort if she believed you to be slothy, unethical, or lazy in behavior. My grandmother died 10 years ago now. I miss her oddness, her quirky character. The older I get, the more I realize she had a lot to teach me. 
not in family history or in how to be a quilter or how to make carnage of fresh vegetables. No, the older I get, the more I think she was perfect. She wasn't a model with flawless features. She wasn't a Nobel laureate, distinguished, astute, or brilliant. She wasn't even the nicest, kindest, gentlest person I knew. She was perfect because she knew how to be her, Sylvia Anderson. She knew how to be human, not a facade of one. There was no pretense about her. You got what you saw. She fit into her skin, and her skin fit her. My own skin doesn't always fit well. I get hung up on vanity or trying to be hip or cool or allowing conventional etiquette to rule my behavior or actions. I get in my own way of being me. My skin would fit better if I just remembered more often that wonderful woman I once knew and thought of her greatest gifts of being, contradiction, fallibility, and humor, the makings of a perfect gal. And now I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer and meditation. The spirit of life and of love, of family, of friends, of mentors, and created family. We invite you, the Holy, to join us in our midst currently in this space. Make it holy just by the act of us gathering here together. We ask that you heal in each one of us the insecurities that teach us that we're not enough, that we're not exactly who, where, how, and what we need to be always, everywhere. We ask you to do the same for everyone in this world to help us provide and care for our planet, our home, and those who reside on it. We send our hearts, greatest wishes, to those who are in danger or suffering right now. And we send our love to all who are celebrating and feeling joy. And we send our concern and our friendship to everyone who is feeling anything in between. We ask all of these things, as well as the silent concerns of our hearts, in the name of all that is good and holy and true. Amen. Those of us who grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons or who had kids or grandkids who did, remember that life lessons of Scooby-Doo were poignant. Scooby-Doo taught us that you can spend a lot of time freaked out, freaked out, <laughs> trembling in the arms of your dog, or running in and out of the same doors in an endless hallway. But in the end, 
that which you were deathly afraid of is usually not at all what you perceived it to be. In fact, our fears rarely match up to reality. Or in the case of Scooby-Doo and crew, our fears are usually an old, balding, maniacal capitalist. That doesn't always translate into our lives, but often does. (laughs) Then we grow up and figure out that there is still so much that we haven't figured out. So much we aren't the best at yet. So much more to be afraid of than the gang in the mystery machine. In fact, I'm not sure that any of us ever feel that we've really got a hang of things at any stage of our lives. As soon as we've figured out how to be good at being unjaded, bright-eyed 20-somethings, we're already heading into our 30s. As soon as we feel like we're settling into our 30s, getting better established in our careers, or discovering a passion we weren't aware of in our young adulthood, and headlong pursuing it with gusto, we look in the mirror, to find a single gray hair springing up on the top of our head. You can see mine when when you greet me after service. (laughs) It's right there. Or we're losing hair on the top of our head and, and instead growing them in strange places. So... I'm just getting started here. We think in every single stage, I'm just getting started here. You know, my years are just, they're flying by so quickly. And it goes on and on like this. I think in every stage is what I'm starting to learn the more I talk to people in stages older than me. And when I talk to those younger than me, and I've forgotten what it was like. It seems to be the same story with a different lens. All of us, to some degree, are faking it. We're faking having this adulting thing figured out. New parents often think, how in the world did anyone think I could be responsible for keeping this tiny, fragile person alive? Oftentimes, this sense of Faking it till we make it is a psychological phenomenon referred to as imposter syndrome. The term was coined in 1978 by psychologists Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. They described it as phoniness in people who believe that they are not intelligent, capable, or creative despite evidence of high achievement. Those with imposter syndrome-esque thoughts are highly motivated to achieve, yet live in fear of being found out or exposed as frauds. With all of the pictures of perfectionism that many of us place on ourselves, we often feel like phonies and secretly, maybe even in the back of our minds, worry that we'll be found out at some point in time and the ruse will be up. Psychologists and sociologists say that imposter syndrome has an increased probability 
the more we feel we are being watched. And I don't mean in the paranoia sense. I mean, you're literally watching me right now. (laughs) The greater our level of mastery in our talent or field, the more likely we are to doubt our right to deserve such a station. Those who are in supervisory roles, excelling in their careers, or possess any amount of celebrity. In fact, imposter syndrome has great prevalence among celebrities. Albert Einstein, at the end of his life, told a friend, The exaggerated esteem in which my life work is held makes me very ill at ease. I feel compelled to think of myself as an involuntary swindler. Maya Angelou, winner of three Grammy Awards, a Pulitzer Prize, a Tony Award, and read an original poem at a presidential inauguration, once said, I have written 11 books, but each time I think, "Uh uh-oh, they're going to find out now. I've run a game on everybody, and they're going to find me out. In a 2013 interview with Maria Hinojosa of NPR's Latino USA fame, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor confessed, I have been living in a state of lack of reality for the past three and a half years. Last year, I got an email from the UU Association asking me if I would be interested in giving a talk at our annual General Assembly. Last year was in Portland. They were launching a series of talks that would be akin to TED Talks, but with themes geared toward a large UU audience. Apparently, they were only asking about a dozen or so innovative leaders within our movement to consider leading such a talk. I'll be honest, my first thought was, woohoo, <laughs> what an honor. But within split fractions of seconds, my second thought was, oh no, what an honor. <laughs> Why me? Why and how on earth did my name get into anyone's mouth as an innovative UU leader? What have I to say that hasn't already been said? What in the world am I going to talk about? I worked on a presentation informed by one of my favorite Mujerista theologians. That's a, a, a perspective of feminist theology from a, a specifically Latina viewpoint. Um, and her name is Ada Maria Isasi Diaz. When the day came... I was shaken like a leaf on a tree, and as I looked out, I saw members of this congregation come to see me speak. Meg was sitting right there, smiling. (laughs) Several folks I had known throughout various stages of my life as a UU, as uh, in my journey toward ministry, were there and a huge room of strangers expecting some unique idea. The stakes were high. Then, 
The editor of the UU World magazine, Kenny Wiley, introduced me as if I were Prince himself, saying things like, I have admired her for a long time. And I thought, why? I only know you extremely marginally through mutual friends. What in the world could you possibly know about me? I shook the whole, through the whole presentation and was sure at some points that my knees would lock and I would pass out on camera in front of everyone. And to be perfectly honest, though I know I have been super involved in the UU movement for most of my life, and, and I have worked really hard, I still had no idea why I was asked to do the talk. And I, I'm not even sure how it went still to this day, though Meg and others have told me that it went very well. It's all kind of a blur. And you never really know, right? Are they saying that? Or do they mean that? What, you know. But when observing facts, just the facts, all I can say is that this year I have been asked back to give another GA talk. This time, Reverend Chris and I have been asked to co-lead a talk specifically on the subject of this month's Spring Into Action Focus, our church's involvement in sanctuary. Thank goodness, though, that I'll have Chris's brilliance there to rely upon this time. Now, hold on. Before you start ordering the catering for my pity party, Know that, like most who have imposter thoughts, I don't always feel this way about myself and my accomplishments. I'm only exposing this underbelly of mine to normalize these emotions here. Comedian Tina Fey is quoted as saying, the beauty of the imposter syndrome is you vacillate between extreme egomania and the complete feeling of, I'm a fraud, oh God, they're on to me, I'm a fraud. One day, you can have on new shoes, that sometimes does it for me, and be super confident, and the next be completely tentative of every step. Historically marginalized and presumed incompetent populations are more prone to experiencing a high degree of imposter syndrome, as you can imagine, such as women, people of color, first-generation immigrants, and first-generation higher education graduates. Comedian Sarah Silverman, one of my favorites, refers to this mental battle against oneself as an aspect of the vagina tax that society charges women. (laughs) Women in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math, that continue to, uh, that those fields that continue to largely be an old boys club are particularly vulnerable to most of us who, um, oh, excuse me, to feeling like a fraud. Studies show that although imposter syndrome certainly does, does affect many, if not most of us, women are more likely to agonize over mistakes and failures, small and large, and, and view it as proof of their incompetence. 
than men. Men, on the other hand, are more likely to not not really wrestle with self-blame. <laughs> Women are more likely to view good fortune as some fluke or grand stroke of luck, while men will remember their accomplishments that made them worthy of such advancement. If a woman tries on clothing in her typical size that does not fit, ill-fitting for whatever reason, she'll believe it to be some deficit in her body, whereas a man is more likely to view it as a deficit in the article of clothing. <laughs> as is the case, <laughs> we laugh because it's true. <laughs> As is the case with women, people of color, and the poor, these self-deriding thoughts don't come from outer space. They are messages that are fed to us from every direction for as long as we have memory. It would be extremely difficult for even the most socially conscious, well-adapted member of such groups to not internalize some of these messages in some way. Though Sotomayor asserts that the greatest obstacle that people will experience in life is not discrimination itself, it's their own fear. And you think what came first, chicken or egg, but there you have it, fear. Are thoughts of being an imposter always a bad thing? How do they serve us? How do they limit us? Well, for starters, a good measure of humility never hurt anyone. Feeling as if we have yet more to learn. Oh, and my family reminds me of this often. <laughs> uh, but feeling as if we have yet more to learn, more goals to reach, will keep us ever striving and urge us against complacency and disinterest in healthy competition. Even healthy, healthy competition with, with our own selves, you know, setting that personal best higher and higher, keeping us interested in life, really. And too much of this brand of self-doubt can be outright debilitating, quite literally. It can keep us from fulfilling our dreams and potential, from realizing any of our passions. Paraphrasing Mr. Rogers, Sarah Silverman reminds us that if it's mentionable, it's manageable. She says, I always look at myself knowing that I will have a certain degree of cognitive distortion. So I put it on a bell curve. I kind of adjust what I'm seeing in the mirror and I know that it's better than what I'm seeing. Whether or not that's true. I think a good rule of thumb when thoughts like this rise up is to think of your best friend. Think of the person that you admire the most in the whole world, who you've looked up to, who you want to be like. Would you stand for them ignoring their greatness? Would you, how would you feel if they were saying the things to you about themselves that you find yourself telling yourself mentally. It's easier said than done. One of my favorite bloggers, who goes by the name Awesomely Lovely, Lovey, excuse me, Awesomely Lovey, two Vs, 
Look her up. She's hilarious. Has some pro tips for vanquishing imposterous thoughts. See what I did there? Imposterous thoughts. She tries to remind herself that I am not the best. I don't have to be. I am enough. The idea of best is temporary. The person who wins a race won it once. The next race, they might not longer be the best. They might not long, no longer be the best. Are they at least in the top three? Did they beat their own time from the last race? We can reach for being the best, but thinking we've lost just because we didn't win is the quickest way to psych yourself out. Two in her pro tips list. Now, she doesn't say booty, but I've changed the word to booty. <laughs> I've worked my booty off, she says. At the minimum, that hard work has earned me a ticket in. Even if I'm not the best, the fact that I know that I work hard, then maybe that alone is enough to have me in that room. My grind got my foot in the door. At, I can at least give myself that. Three of pro tips, knowing that there are subpar and mediocre people out there who still think they belong in the room that your exceptional booty thinks you don't deserve to be in. <laughs> Trust and believe, she tells us, that there are people with far less skills than you who cannot be swayed from thinking that the room should have been named after them. People who cannot hold a torch to you are out there here crowning themselves. Never underestimate the power of confidence. If you believe you're the dopest thing walking, you might convince other people of the same just because you're so headstrong about it as a fact. And lastly, four in her pro tips to combating imposter syndrome. Even if I happen to be in that room by accident and by no doing of my own, I am in that room. It is no longer an accident. How do I make it intentional and purposeful? Well, I better learn from the best then. I better walk away from that room inspired with a resolve to be a more superior version of myself. So next time I am in the room, I feel at home in it. She's a wise, hilarious lady. And now I want to tell you a story. It's a folk tale from India, legend. It's called Hidden Divinity. They say there was once a time when all humans were gods. But those humans abused these rites so much that Brahma decided to take their divinity from them. All of the gods discussed this matter. They must hide the humans' divinity in a place where the humans would never find it. Some suggested the depths of the sea. But they know humans would dive to the very bottom of the sea eventually and find it. Some suggested the tops of the highest mountains. Others were sure that humans would climb even there. Perhaps in the heart of the earth, humans were apt to burrow down and discover it there too. At last, Brahma came up with a brilliant
brilliant plan, we will place human divinity deep, deep inside of each human. They will never think of looking for it there. The plan worked perfectly. Humans climb mountains, they dive into the ocean, they burrow deep into the earth, they race about from continent to continent, ever searching. But few think to stand still and search deep within themselves. Boom. So let's remember, let's keep that in mind. Brahma's a wise old god. Let's remember to never stop looking for that inner divinity within each and every one of us, no matter what our brains are saying, no matter how deep it's buried. May it be so. So please do go in peace to love yourselves, to encourage each other to love themselves, and to tell yourself how enough you always are everywhere. May it be so. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.